So in this morning's reflection, I had been talking about um, trusting in our innate wisdom, a wisdom that's not manufactured, it's not created, uh, doesn't belong to anyone, um, which really comes from clear seeing and the uh, capacity to know truth, be truth, and live with a purity of heart that is not bound by greed, hatred, and delusion. It really is the touching into an innate joy. Um, And many of us probably feel like that level of wisdom is not completely accessible to us. Is very fleeting in whatever glimmers we may have of it. And you know, as a result, we more often than not experience an uneasiness in life or dissatisfaction. You know, being here on retreat, we might have some form of dissatisfaction happening with how our retreat is unfolding even though we might find ourselves in really good circumstances for practice. Um, The Buddha, before he was a Buddha, noticed this, that beings seem to not be happy. And he did a deep form of inquiry, investigation. And he did so with a very practical mind and really looked into the cause and effect of both happiness and suffering. And this he explained by way of the Four Noble Truths, which was what he realized on the night of his liberation. So tonight I wanted to talk about these Four Noble Truths. And when he gave the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, this was when he set in motion the wheel of the Dhamma in our time. And these uh, teachings on the Four Noble Truths are really essential teachings, fundamental. And they are like golden nuggets, you know, nuggets of truth. Um, they are something that each of the Buddhist traditions really share in emphasis. You know, really, they're foundational. Um, they, all of the other teachings that were given f- can find roots in these four noble truths. And I, I think fortunate for us that they are very practical. They are something that we can look and see quite readily in our own experience. They are what we explore as we sit here in practice. And the deepening understanding of these four truths leads to the highest wisdom. They're actually teachings that I myself have heard many, many times. And I still find such a delight in the mind when I hear them. 
And I think when I look back uh, on my life, I, I understand it in some way. Because, you know, when I was a teenager, suffering, the talking about suffering seemed taboo. You know, it's like nobody was talking about it. And then as a teenager, I came across the teachings of the Buddha. And I do remember there being like, oh, okay, so now someone's really telling it like it is. You know, that someone's not dancing around the white elephant in the room. And, you know, the, the, um, the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, it's like the Buddha was naming that white elephant that, you know, we can so often avoid and go to such great lengths to avoid. Actually, I heard a story tonight on on the news that just totally, um, you know, exemplifies how how as a culture we avoid suffering, uh, avoid pain, and you know, I've certainly seen it in my own mind. So this is not to judge the people who who may have done this, but well, you know, walking down the street and you see some someone in pain, some struggle, and you just avert your eyes. And uh, actually, when I was putting this talk together, I talked about how, well, if there was an accident, we'd probably respond. Well, there was an accident where a woman was going up an escalator and she had a scarf on, and it got caught in the escalator. And almost all of the people just walked right past her, except for a couple of people. And the the report was from a man who didn't, but he didn't have the scissors or knife to cut her free, and she died. And he was just blown away by the fact of the unresponsiveness of people. And, you know, what, what ends up happening if we aren't willing to face suffering is we deaden our hearts. We don't even know it's there. We avert our gaze. We deny, suppress. And then we just have no capacity to discover, to find this innate joy. Our minds become fragmented. It's a very painful way of living and yet we aren't even aware of it. So I'd just like to say what these four noble truths are, in case there's anyone who is not familiar with them. The truth of suffering, that there is suffering, the cause of suffering, being craving, where we're wanting things to be other than what they are, the cessation of suffering, that, yay, there is the good news, the end to suffering, and that the fourth noble truth is that there is a path leading to the end of suffering, which is the eightfold path. Also just to say that suffering is not a great translation of the word dukkha, which is the word in Pali that it is, Um, Some translations are that which is hard to bear or that which is incapable of satisfying. Um, You know, a more easy to relate to translation is just the unsatisfactoriness. 
that the all these fleeting experiences uh, don't bring lasting happiness. And these four noble truths, when the Buddha spoke about them, he wasn't telling us to simply accept them or reject them, as the mind can do. If we don't want to accept, we reject. But instead, he invited us to explore, investigate, to really come to know these truths for ourselves. And that's when they become noble truths. When they, the understanding leads to that freedom of mind and heart. So beginning with the truth of suffering. There is suffering. If I had musical instruments up here, I'd do a drum roll. <laughs> Something really ominous. <laughs> um, you, you know, if we, we had a, a, a film script going, the music would get very heavy. Um, faces get long. Sort of like, oh no, the drudgery of suffering. And yet... Um, The Buddha spoke about it in a way that really helps the heart to find ease. Because, you know, he, he talked about being a human being and all of the, hu- the experiences we're subject to. There's difficult terrain. And that with this, there can be this feeling of unsatisfactoriness. That you know, that we're just not finding this happiness. Or the pro- you know, there's so many promises of happiness in life. And yet, we find ourselves in struggle, in strife. Our suffering intensifies when we take this personally. So the Buddha said, it's really helpful just to see. And to see this as universal. To see that all beings transiting through life will face places that it's difficult. It's helpful to look at what the Buddha meant by there is suffering. He talked about there being suffering by way of, you know, experience of strong, unpleasant states, mental distress, physical distress, uh, times where there's an abundance of unpleasant experience. He talked about there being suffering from change, that even those experiences that do bring moments of pleasure, moments of happiness, that they're fleeting, they don't last. Sometimes with the pleasure, even when it's present, we might notice that there's a fear of losing that which is pleasant. 
we can move into trying to protect and it becomes tiring. We may find that we start trying to manipulate our lives to have an abundance of the pleasant. Or through this change, that there just is a level of insecurity that happens, even in times of this having. Now, I think right now, in this time on this planet, um, in some ways we've been through a period where many people were in the category of the haves, that there was more abundance. And if in any way we took it for granted, there's a suffering that happens as things change. He also said there's a suffering that comes from the relentlessness of having, you know, conditioned experience. And this too is even when it's pleasant. And I, I know there's many examples of this in my own life where, um, you know, too much of a good thing, <laughs> you know, where there's just, uh, can be too many good things to do, uh, too many wonderful people, you know, be, connecting with people can be great, and there's wonderful beings in the world, but if we connect with them all individually, it's exhausting. There's a relentlessness to just being a human being, having a body to care for, having to, you know, feed the body, uh, take care of it, feed family, take, you know, we love our children, and yet the demands are ceaseless. And uh, this goes on day after day after day. At times it can feel very oppressive. We may have experienced this in coming into a sitting. Maybe it's near the beginning of our retreat. We come with a lot of determination, you know, a real resolution of heart. And we have this sense that as we sit down, we will sit until we are completely free. And then that lasts for a while. And then the aches and pains of the body set in. And, you know, maybe we respond to just subtle shiftings. Maybe it's just the awareness of all of the arising sensations. But then the pressure on the bladder grows so strong that there is nothing to do but to respond to it. You know, that no matter how strong our aspiration, there's just things that need to be done, care that needs to be given. And this, at times, can feel oppressive. Looking to see, in our experience, how do we relate to there is suffering? How do we relate to the statement? How do we relate to the experience when it arises? You know, during the course of a day, 
Is there times when unpleasant experience arises and we want to avert our gaze? We want to focus on the pleasant. We want to focus on the calm. And this fragmentation occurs, this turning away, not looking, not wanting to see. What happens if when there's some form of suffering, we just say, this is suffering. In the saying of that, it's not personal, it's not bad, it's just what is. The Buddha said, suffering is to be understood. And this happens when we don't take it personally. The Buddha also defined dukkha in this way. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with what one dislikes is dukkha. Separation from what one loves is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. This points towards the gross levels of dukkha, where we don't get what we want, where we're separated from that which we love. It also goes to the subtle forms where clinging to the five aggregates, clinging to body, clinging to feelings, um, perceptions, volitional formations, consciousness, the subtle ways that that we cling to these different formations will also create suffering. We need to know that in saying that there is suffering, this is not an absolute truth. If it was an absolute truth, there would be no end to suffering. And there is an end to suffering. We find in accepting that there is suffering, there's a movement of mind from wanting to get rid of suffering to wanting to understand suffering. And it's a huge shift. And we can see it. Um, You know, when we first began practice and we experienced some form of body pain, you know, our tendency prior to it may have been to just move away from pain. But there comes a shift where it's like we look. What's happening here? 
can we see what the rub, what the sting, what the distress is about? This level of seeing there is suffering helps us to connect. It's hard to hate someone who is in suffering, even ourselves. Being able to see there is suffering in a universal way helps us to open our hearts to the world at large. Seeing that this is suffering will also really heighten this desire to investigate, to see, to know the cause of suffering, which takes us into the second noble truth, being that of craving. The Pali word is tana, translated as thirst or fever, an unsatisfied longing where there's a thirsting for something in order to feel whole, unified. In our lives, we experience this thirst in many different ways. Most obvious being that of sense desire, the lusting or thirsting after the pleasant experience where we really believe that if we have beautiful, wonderful experience, this will satisfy us. This will bring us happiness. And even though we've been disappointed so many times, we seem to get fooled by this one as it comes by. And it's not that pleasure is bad, but it's really what the untrained mind does with it, does with pleasant experience, the grasping, hanging on to, wanting more of, pursuit of, that is so exhausting, that is done in a way that is so self-referential, you know, often we make big sacrifices to get that which is pleasurable. Without, and that, you know, the doing of that based on this sense of self, getting, having, and forgetting the whole, the larger picture. Robert Burns says, Pleasures are like puppies spread. You seize the flower blooms is shed or like the snow falls on the river a moment white then melts forever this is what these sense pleasures are like just there one moment gone the next I think the Buddha had a very hard job in trying to point out to us the pain of craving Because, I mean, 
how many of us feel like, you know, to follow our passion. Like there can be a sense of feeling really alive with passion. That strong thirst. There's something very tantalizing about it. But that's only when we look on the surface. If we look deeper, we see the pain of the pain in that craving and how fleeting the pleasure is. Sometimes it's hard to see, you know, what's the real pain of wanting a soft cushion? What's what's the suffering in wanting a good meal? What's the suffering in wanting a good night's sleep? Yeah, if we're an insomniac, we will know there is a lot of pain in wanting a good night's sleep. (laughs) It's all right when you get it, but if it's not there, it's pretty painful. The Buddha once said, I do not see any other single fetter bound by which beings for a long, long time wander and hurry through the round of existence, like this fetter of craving. Bound by this fetter of craving, beings do wander and hurry through the round of existence. Craving, where it's just a driving force in our lives. Wanting. We find it in our practice when we come on retreat. And we want the peak experiences. We want the highs, the thrills. Takes us into a life of addiction, intensity junkies. We can just, in the course of a day, Really investigate the craving that arises. Wanting pleasant experience in our meditation. Wanting pleasant food. Wanting comfort. The ceaseless. I mean, it just, you know, sometimes it's like just... the mind biting after each experience. What does it feel like when we don't act on it? When we aren't lost in the mesmerizing object of experience, but rather are with the craving itself. The second form of craving that the Buddha talked about was the desire for becoming, for continued existence. Many of us may have a denial of death. And we, you know, it's like just this this thought that we'll never die, even though we see people around us. I mean, it doesn't even have to be on the level of thinking we'll never die, we just tend to live from that place of we'll never die, not believing it. 
know, really um, believing that this body, mind, will go on this, in this way forever. We find even moment to moment that we give birth to self by becoming the experiences that happen, becoming the anger, I am angry, becoming the frustration, I am frustrated, becoming the sadness, I am sad, as if it belongs to us. In our lives as children, it's probably common to hear, what will you become when you grow up? We're very deeply conditioned to becoming, you know, a way of presenting self, something better in the future. We practice to become enlightened, to become good meditators, to become peaceful, something better than what we perceive ourselves to be, wanting to enhance our self-image. This is a teaching from Ajahn Chah. What are we practicing for? We are practicing in order to relinquish, not gain something. A woman told me she was suffering. When I asked her what she wanted, she said she wanted to be enlightened. I replied, as long as you want to be enlightened, you will never become enlightened. Don't want anything. Suzuki Roshi said there are no enlightened people, just enlightened moments. Becoming. Looking at this in our day, what do we become? What do we take ownership of? The third form of craving, the desire not to be. Sometimes this is experienced as annihilation, separation from, wanting to get rid of. It can happen when we're overwhelmed. It can also happen when we start to see the futility of chasing after happiness in these fleeting conditions of life. But we don't have the wisdom to know that that doesn't mean that all life is futile, that all life is hopeless. We find that the experience of the desire not to be can you know, really range from just a weariness with life it can, um, you know, in the untrained mind, lead us to drug abuse, addiction. It can even lead one to suicide, where the desire not to be is so strong that one takes one's life. We can see this desire not to be in small ways in our practice, where we're being with pain in order to get rid of it. Where we maybe are using the noting practice and we use the noting to annihilate the experience, to get rid of it. It's like we clobber it over the head with our noting. Um, 
through just cutting off the denying, suppressing, not wanting. There's a real resistance to what's happening. So all of these different forms of craving to be explored, to see. If we don't look at them, if we don't see how this craving is manifesting, we will never find the end of suffering. One of the things that I have um, at, from time to time found very helpful to do to, to just expose craving because it can be very subtle. You know, it can be quite subtle. Um, I, I just every now and then I would drop in the phrase, this is it. And then look to the reaction in the mind. You know, this is it. Huh? This is it. This can't be it. Or kind of like screaming, this is it? No way. <laughs> or maybe it just drops in. This is it. Just, ah. No quivering. No shaking. Just at peace with. So the Buddha talked about how craving is to be abandoned. To be let go of. And that really happens when we see the suffering of it. When you know, mindfulness is strong, clear seeing is strong. This is where wisdom comes forth, and there's the letting go that happens. We do it in small moments when some desire arises, and we just don't follow it. We aren't tempted by it. We don't feed it. And one day that craving runs out of fuel. Nothing to feed it. This deepening understanding leads us to the third noble truth the cessation of suffering. And this is, you know, really where we see that the Buddha wasn't teaching grim teachings, that his teachings were really based in finding true happiness, true freedom, The cessation of suffering, sometimes called the final quenching of all things that are ablaze, the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion. There's descriptions of, it's called nibbana, cessation of suffering, as the unborn the unmade, 
the unoriginated, the unformed or unconditioned, the deathless. The good thing about that description is it's really hard to fabricate. <laughs> you know, we can't come up with what we think is that experience because it's not about the experience. Um, but then there's other descriptions that probably we can uh, more easily get pictures for. The highest peace, incomparable safety, the highest wisdom, the further shore, an island amidst the flood, or the cool cave or, or sh- of shelter, um, the calming of all constructing activities, stable and timeless. That sounds pretty good. So the end of suffering. I know uh, for myself, uh, at one point I was studying the Four Noble Truths and doing so over time, you know, spending a lot of time, you know, I think it was a month I spent on the Four Noble Truths in total and really exploring them, each one as I went through my daily life. So there is suffering, you know, just seeing it rampant, seeing the, the, the cause of suffering, craving, seeing it rampant. And, you know, at that point, it's like, oh, my God. And then when I got to the third noble truth, it was almost like instant relief. <laughs> oh, right, that's not the whole picture. There is an end to this suffering. <clears throat> There's actually more said about the path to uh, the cessation of suffering than than there is said about nibbana itself, and I think that there's wisdom in that. That because our minds so like to construe, so conceptualize, that any descriptions we're given, we're, you know, just subtly trying to fabricate in our own experience, and that. What the Buddha did was laid out, you know, just pointed to the real causes of the distress. And then, you know, in the fourth noble truth, where he laid out the noble eightfold path, it was really where he gave the prescription for freedom. And just said, if you cultivate that, if you follow that path, the result will be the end of suffering. Our faith in what we're doing can be strengthened by noticing the moments of letting go in the mind. And sometimes it's interesting that we don't actually pay attention to that. Because if it's dramatic, strong, we might. You know, if we've really been caught in suffering, we might really notice when that dissolves, is gone. But there can be moments in a day where just for a moment... The mind has no greed, no aversion, no delusion. But there's not, 
It's not like it's exciting. So we just don't even see it. Overlook it. Don't notice the coolness of the mind at that time. We can notice a temporary relief when we meet with mindfulness experiences at the sense door. When in a moment of hearing, there's just hearing. In a moment of seeing, there's just seeing. In a moment of touching, just touching. In a moment of tasting, just tasting. In a moment of thinking, just thinking. Where we don't take it up as belonging to I, me, or mine. Notice those moments. Not that you hang on to them, but be aware. The coolness. Mindfulness is cool. I was once practicing with a, a monk, Sayada Udamika, and he, I, I don't know, I was going through, you know, just seeing the fire of craving, and he said, the past is on fire, the future is on fire, mindfulness is the coolness. The way to put out the fire is mindfulness. Now, so just looking to the coolness of mindfulness. That is helpful. Ajahn Buddhadasa, famous Thai teacher, said, take the path of mindfulness and wisdom. Don't take the path of I, me, and mine. Seeing if we, you know, it's, it's a simple thing. All of these experiences that even right now are arising, being known, and passing away. Don't pick them up as belonging to I, me, or mine. In the seeing, just the seeing. In the hearing, just the hearing. There's other ways we might taste of the coolness where we're not acting out of greed, aversion, delusion. Moments where there's a heartfelt generosity that's not self-referencing. There's just an ease in the heart. Moments in nature where we're not struggling, feel at peace, and a part of all things. Moments in meditation where equanimity is strong. The mind is non-reactive. There's a balance, a poise. Times when concentration is strong and we have temporary relief from the hindrances. I remember doing a retreat 
and concentration, really working with absorption concentration different to the momentary concentration. And the, there was this sense of the mind getting very protected from the hindrances. And, you know, at some point, I think it was after the retreat had ended, I realized that I had gone through the retreat never wondering what was for lunch. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know about you, but come 11 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> it's really can become this obsessive thought. <laughs> it's a great relief when that's not there. If we keep on, if we have faith, if we have confidence in the path, there does come a time when the mind naturally opens to the unconditioned. It's not something forced. It's not mechanical. I guess the mind just says, it's enough. (laughs) The understanding's there. The fourth noble truth, the way leading to the cessation of suffering, the noble eightfold path, which really gets broken down into the three trainings. It, uh, um, sila, that of ethical conduct, virtuous conduct, where we live a life of inclusion, uh, where we're aspiring to live in a way of non-harming, where we take care in what we do, what we say. This really becomes the foundation for the training of the mind. Because without the basis of sila, or ethical conduct, we will sit tormented by our actions, that they keep coming back, replaying. The mind uh, just gets caught in guilt. Um, We live trying to protect the mind from remembering things that were painful. Uh, But when we live in peace and harmony, the mind has a natural settledness. The second training is that of training the mind. You know, this mind that can be so unruly, can be... um, distracted so much of the time, we start to make effort to really be mindful, present, to see things moment to moment in our experience. As this strengthens, there comes a sense of being undistracted, where there is a seeing of that which is arising and passing moment to moment. And it takes effort to do this because of our habits because we uh, uh, so easily get distracted. But with effort, we stay on track. We keep looking. We keep returning. We keep coming back to present moment experience. And then this takes us to wisdom, to the clear seeing, understanding of the way things are, where we live both on the relative level of respecting life. We live understanding the law of karma, cause and effect. And then 
This culminates in the realization of the Four Noble Truths. There's a description from one of my teachers, Sayada Uchanaka, about how just when we are mindful of one movement of the foot, we are developing the whole of the Eightfold Path. So I'd like to share that uh, with you. When the mind is focused on the movement of the foot, we have to make mental effort. That is right effort. Because of that mental effort, we can be mindful of the movement. That is right mindfulness. When the mind is focused on the movement of the foot, it is concentrated on it for a moment. But the moment the concentration becomes continuous and constant, stronger and deeper, that concentration is right concentration. The mental state which leads the mind to the object of meditation is right thought. In this way, the mind becomes well concentrated on the object of meditation, the movement of the foot. Then it penetrates into the true nature of the physical process of the movement, knowing it as a natural process. That knowing or understanding of it as a natural process is right understanding. While we are engaged in our mindfulness meditation, we are abstaining from wrong speech, wrong action, and wrong livelihood. This means that we also are including the three factors included with sila, right speech, action, and and livelihood. Any moment we are mindful of any mental or physical process, we are developing the Noble Eightfold Path. When we develop the Eightfold Path, we remove false view by the power of right understanding and can enter stream, the stream entry, or the first stage of enlightenment. So, as we're here, we're really practicing what the Buddha talked about as the prescription for freedom or the end of suffering. So these four noble truths to be investigated, understood. The first noble truth is to be investigated because the truth of suffering instills an urgency that keeps us from getting lost. The second noble truth is to be abandoned. It's important to know that the cause of suffering is not so mysterious, but can be clearly seen. The third noble truth is to be realized, to reach the end of suffering, to know this for ourselves. The fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path, is to be cultivated. It is the path to freedom. So something we can explore as we're here to really come to know for ourselves. And we find, even though at first it may have the sense of being heavy, harsh, that actually it brings great joy. That there, you know, that isn't just the joy that comes with complete liberation but comes from moments 
when we live wisely, when we do the best that we can, when we realize that we're on the path and that there's nothing else to do. It becomes a true lightning of the heart. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the end of suffering. So, closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate